Well, good morning again to you and welcome not only to those of you who are here in the traditional service, but welcome also to those of you who are joining us right now in the contemporary service and via broadcast. I'm glad that we have this opportunity as one church family to learn from God's word together, even if we have to be in different places. And we're going to be learning from the Bible together this morning as each week. And so if you'd like to use a Bible during worship this morning and don't have one, our ushers are going to be coming up the aisles and both of our worship venues, and you can borrow one from them and use it during the service today and just return to the rack in the back of the room after worship today. You know, i, I got to tell you this story that we heard from the Gospel of Matthew, from Matthew 26. The story just blows me away. It really does. And it's not even just because the story has a lot of drama in it, and it does. The conflict, the anxiety in this story, the tension in the story. You can, you can kind of miss it if you don't know the context really well, but it's really high, and I'll tell you more about that in a minute. But it's not even just because of that that it kind of blows my hair back. But it's because this story intersects with my own life in such a powerful way. I see the mistake that the disciples made in this story, and I think, man, that is a mistake I am prone to make. And I see what this woman, this humble woman in the story, what she saw, and it's something that I need to see. It's a powerful story. It intersects with my life, and I bet it, it does with yours also. But to kind of describe what I mean by that, I, I want to tell you about a book that I read a number of years ago now, actually. It was a book by a popular Christian author. Uh, the author's name is Brian McLaren. Some of you may have heard of that writer before. And the title, he's written a number of books, actually. The title of this book is The Seven Jesuses that I have known, which is kind of a clever title, I always thought, because there aren't seven Jesuses, there's only one Jesus, and he knows that. But the story is kind of a, an autobiographical reflection, a, a reflection on his own spiritual journey and a reflection on the ways that over the course of his life, he, found, he has found that he is connected with different sides or dimensions of the program of Jesus, different sides or dimensions of the identity or character or personality of Jesus. And he's farther along in life and in ministry than I am. And maybe when I get there, I'll be up to seven. I'm not up to seven yet. But I can look at my own life and say that I, I can relate to that. I can see how that has happened over the course of my life. And, and I bet that that's true in a lot of your lives also. And in fact, in all the places that we are gathered for worship together right now, I bet we've got a pretty broad spectrum right here in worship today of different ways that we have experienced or understand the priorities or program of Jesus. For some of you, I imagine the program of Jesus is like that of a teacher. Jesus is a godly teacher who teaches really important life lessons, teaches us how to live life in the way that God created to be lived. And maybe one of the reasons that you're a Christian, maybe one of the reasons that you're here in worship today is because you want to learn those things from Jesus. You want to learn life from the master. And if that's you, I'm with you. I agree. I think that's really important in understanding the program of Jesus. For some of you, maybe the program of Jesus is more like that of a theologian. Jesus is a theologian. He teaches us about God, and he reveals God to us. And you don't want to mess around anymore. You want to know God. And so you want to learn from Jesus. And if that's you, man, I'm right there with you. That also, hard to say no to that. Maybe for some of you, Jesus is kind of a, a social visionary or even a social revolutionary. Maybe you find yourself inspired by his concern for the people that, that some have termed the least, the last, and the lost. That's inspiring to you, and you see it as important, needful even. And so you want to be a part of that, and I'm right there with you on that one too. Maybe for some of you, you see the program of Jesus as being centrally that, that he is the key to God's plan for our personal salvation. 
that Jesus died a sinless death so that those of us who are sinners could be forgiven. That we would receive grace and forgiveness, pardon, and God's gift of eternal life. And so you want to receive grace and pardon, God's gift of eternal life, and so do I. And maybe some of you, honestly, as, I, as you listen to this list, maybe you're even thinking, you know, I'm not really sure what it is that I think about Jesus. And maybe part of the reason you're here is because you want to seek some answers to those kind of questions. And if that's you, I hope you don't feel too alone here today because, honestly, I think most of us, or maybe even all of us, are here with more questions than we usually admit. I think that there are just differences. Some of them are smaller and some of them are bigger, but there are differences in the way that different individuals as a part of this community understand and experience the program of Jesus. But here's what this passage says to me that's so powerful. This passage says to me that however it is you understand the program of Jesus, the program of Jesus matters way less than the person of Jesus. I think this passage says to us that we will be closer to the truth that we will be closer to Jesus himself, and I think it even shows us that we will be more full of love, we'll have hearts that are more full of joy, that are more overflowing, when we know that the person of Jesus is more important than the program of Jesus. And I could even extrapolate from it and maybe go a little bit beyond what the passage exactly says and say, I think you actually can have both, but you have to know which way to start. Because if you start with a devotion to or a commitment to the program of Jesus, you might not ever get around to actually knowing the person of Jesus. But if you draw close to the person of Jesus, you will inevitably grow up into or live into the program of Jesus in all of its many sides. But let's not just keep talking about it. I want to show you actually, I think, how this passage gets there. So if you do have your Bible with you right now, now's a great time to open that up to Matthew chapter 26. We're going to start in verse 1 there, or, or turn your Bible on if that's what you've got on your phone or your tablet. Scroll to Matthew chapter 26. And at the beginning here of this story, this story does start at this kind of high level of tension, this high level of drama that I was mentioning. It's Passover time. Let's just start reading Matthew 26, 1 through 2. When Jesus had finished saying all these things, these parables that he was teaching in Matthew 25 and the stuff he taught in Matthew 24. He finished that. He said to his disciples, as you know, the Passover is two days away. And that's not something that they were going to not know. They knew that. As you know, the Passover is two days away and the Son of Man will be handed over to be crucified. And just pause there for a second. Passover is a huge time of the year for the Jewish people living in Israel 2,000 years ago. This would have been the high point every year. I was trying to think of like some modern parallel, like is that how our culture experiences Christmas? But I don't think Christmas has all the energy and expectation and excitement in our culture, unless maybe you're like between four and seven, then maybe it's that exciting. And then my mind went, maybe Black Friday is like that, but that was embarrassing to admit, so I'm not going to say that. I thought maybe if your city is hosting the Super Bowl and your team is in the Super Bowl, if the New Orleans Saints have been in the Super Bowl last year, maybe that kind of buzz would overtake the whole culture. I mean, Passover time when every word that you spoke meant a little bit more and every action was a little bit more intense and everything that you hoped for, you hoped for just a little bit harder. It was Passover time. Jesus says, Passover is two days away, as you know. They didn't need to be reminded. Everybody knew. And then Jesus says to them in this intense moment, and the Son of Man, that's one of the ways that Jesus referred to himself. He said, the Son of Man is going to be handed over to be crucified. Crucified. You know, if, if you're in church very much, if you're a Christian, if you've read these stories before, maybe your mind kind of just runs over the top of that word. You're like, yeah, I know. That's what happens at the end of the story. But man, for them, that's execution. That's capital punishment. 
Jesus says, we're going to go into Jerusalem. They're, they're in Jerusalem. Here we are. We're going to be in Jerusalem. It's the highest point of the year. It's the most exciting time of the year. And I'm going to get arrested. They're going to catch me. And they're going to put me on trial. And by the way, I'm going to lose at that trial. They're going to find me guilty. I'm going to be handed over, not even to the leaders of our people, but to the leaders of the Romans who have all kinds of violence in their arsenal. And they're going to beat me. They're going to kill me. It's going to be a brutal execution. And Jesus is talking to people who love him. He's talking to friends, disciples. Jesus' mother was present at his crucifixion. Maybe she was around. I mean, I just wonder, as I put myself into this story, what were they thinking and feeling at that moment? Panicked, fear, frustration, anger, injustice, indignation. Don't let it happen. It can't be. Their nerves would be so frayed and so raw. The intensity level is just way up here. And then Matthew just kind of shifts the scene and he lets us take a peek into a room in the palace of the high priest. And this is what it says in Matthew 26, 3 through 5. It's a very different scene. Then the chief priests and the elders of the people, these are the leaders of God's people, they were assembled in the palace of the high priest whose name was Caiaphas. And they were scheming. They schemed to arrest Jesus secretly and kill him. But not during the festival, they said. Or there may be a riot among the people. Man, Jesus has just told his followers that he goes to die. And Matthew tells us they go to kill him. They're on the opposite side of this deal. And I imagine Jesus' disciples, friends, followers, family, their emotions were so raw, full of fear and not knowing what was coming next. But these guys were calm. They were cool and collected. They're like, you know, let's do this. We got we to kill him. We got to kill him, but let's get our timing right. Can't do it during the Passover festival. People might get upset. Let's bide our time and do this when the moment is right. And they plan to kill Jesus. Man, the drama of the story is just so high right at the beginning. And it's with all this up in the air that we move into the kind of main action of the passage. Jesus, probably that evening, goes out of the city of Jerusalem to a little outlying town, kind of a suburb of Jerusalem, called Bethany. And he's having dinner at someone's house, a guy whose name was Simon the leper. How'd you like to have the leper for your last name? It'd be kind of awkward, wouldn't it? Most of us are like Olson or Anderson. My last name is Turnbull. I'm glad people don't call me Steve the leper. That'd be kind of awkward. But Simon the leper. And we don't know for sure. Maybe he actually still was leprous. Jesus hung out with leprous people. Maybe he was just stigmatized from previously having had leprosy. And maybe he was one of the lepers that Jesus has healed. That would kind of make sense to me that Jesus would be in his house at this point two days before the end of his life at this climactic moment. I don't find it all that surprising. I find it meaningful, but not surprising that Jesus is there in the home of Simon the leper. What surprises me and what impresses me is that his disciples were there with him. Because Jesus is kind of famous for hanging out with people he wasn't supposed to. People were upset about this all the time. Some of Jesus' opponents were scandalized by that. Sometimes his own disciples were scandalized by that. But in this story, the disciples are there also. We know that they get involved in the conversation just a little bit later. I'm impressed that they were there. And there they are, having dinner at the home of Simon the leper. And in breaks this woman. Comes into the dinner party, apparently uninvited. And she brings in this alabaster jar of perfume. A kind of a perfumed oil would have been in that jar. Alabaster was a white substance. There's two different kinds of ancient alabaster. Basically kind of a stone, a calcite. Uh, one kind's a little bit harder than the other. Both brittle and kind of soft. And she comes in, she takes this jar of perfumed oil, and she just pours it over Jesus' head. And in the story in the Gospel of Luke, it tells us that she actually broke the jar and poured some of the perfume on his feet. They remembered different details about the story, but whatever the details, the point is the same. 
She gave Jesus an extravagant gift. This is, let's read the verses here. This is what it says from Matthew 26, 6 and 7. While Jesus was in Bethany in the home of Simon the leper, a woman, unnamed, came to him with an alabaster jar of very expensive perfume, which she poured on his head as he was reclining at the table. And just kind of put yourself in that scene. You think for a second, what's it like to have a jar full of oil, like picture olive oil or something, poured over your head. Now, if that happened to me when I was having dinner, I think honored is not the word that would describe how I'd feel at that moment. I'm a dad, so this actually happens to me. I get oil on me while I'm eating and grease on my clothes. Rarely is honored the first experience that I had at that moment. But cultures change, right? And having, being anointed with oil meant something different in their culture than it does now. It meant two things, really, kind of two main resonances for this word. And the first one is royalty. This is how kings were anointed. This is how kings were chosen. This is how it was signified that a king was going to, uh, was going to, be, was going to rise to power. And there's examples of this in the Bible and outside the Bible. And we also know from historical records that kings in this period had a special fondness for perfume. I guess they liked to smell pretty. They were pretty smelling kings. Who am I to judge? We also know, by the way, that ancient Romans used to debate. There was, you can read about this. There's a debate about whether the ideal period for bathing yourself was once a year or once every other year. So you can understand the perfume thing maybe would have been a good idea. Kings could afford really expensive perfumes, and they were very fond of them. And so when somebody would come in and anoint Jesus with oil on his head, a perfumed oil, certainly people's minds would run to royalty. And this woman was dedicated to him in that way. She saw that he was the king even as he was headed to his death, which is the other resonance of being anointed with a perfumed oil. People anointed dead bodies with perfumed oils. The other resonance is royalty and burial. And the reason for that, of course, as you know, is that dead people don't smell very good. In fact, in the stories of Easter morning that we'll read when we celebrate the resurrection of Jesus next Sunday, we find the women are the first ones to the tomb and they were on their way there to anoint Jesus' dead body with perfumed oils or spices to cover up the scent. And there's a story from Jesus' life where Jesus raises Lazarus from the dead. Lazarus was a friend of Jesus and Lazarus had two sisters, Mary and Martha. They were all close to Jesus. And Lazarus has been dead four days and Jesus makes a trip to their home in Bethany, actually, where Jesus goes there. And he comes to the tomb, and he orders that the tomb in which Lazarus has been buried and lying for four days, that it would be opened up so that Lazarus could be raised from that and he would walk out of the tomb. And Lazarus' sister Martha is there, and Martha says to Jesus, no, no, don't, don't do that. It's going to smell in there. Now, if you've ever read the stories of Mary and Martha, if you've heard them before, you know that Martha is a fastidious housekeeper. She loves hospitality. She is the hostess with the mostess. In the story of Jesus and Mary and Martha, Mary is listening to Jesus, listening to his teaching, and Martha's in the kitchen trying to make sure everything runs smoothly, and she's asking for Mary's help. Martha is a great hostess. Uh, tradition tells us her last name may have been Stuart. No one knows for sure. Can't confirm that. But at the raising of Lazarus, she says, no, it's going to smell in there. They didn't have the perfumed oils. Maybe they couldn't afford it at that moment to take care of business inside the tomb. So these oils, they meant royalty and they meant burial. And it's this second resonance, actually, that Jesus even calls out in the story. Jesus explains it this way in Matthew 26, 12. He explains her actions. He says, when she poured this perfume on my body, she did it to prepare me for burial. 
for burial. And she was recognizing Jesus as the king, even as he goes to die. That was her action. But she's not the only one in the story, right? The disciples of Jesus are also there. These disciples of Jesus who had been mentored by Jesus, who had been taught how to live by Jesus, who had kind of given their lives actually to learn how to live life in the Jesus way, and they're not real happy about this. They think there's a problem. They object to her actions. They have the sense, they have the insight, if you will, to see that what she's doing actually runs against the program of Jesus. And i got to be honest, I don't think they're wrong. I think they're probably right about that. They said this perfume is very expensive, could have been sold at a really high price. We could have marked this up. Remember, kings love perfumed oil. We could have sold this to royalty, made a big sum of money, and then used that money and given it to the poor. And it's not very long before this episode, that, before this scene, there was a previous scene that we actually read about in worship not all that long ago, where a wealthy young man came to Jesus, said, Jesus, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Jesus said, obey all the commandments. And the guy goes, yeah, did that, check, got it. And Jesus says, you still lack one more thing. Go take all you've got, sell it, sell it all, give the proceeds to the poor, you'll have treasure in heaven, come follow me. I would imagine the disciples were there. That might have been not very long before this. And, you know, the the gospel stories of Jesus' life are full of examples of the disciples completely getting it wrong, not understanding what Jesus is saying. He has to call them, oh, you of little faith, you of little understanding. I imagine when the disciples were here in this moment, a light bulb went off in their head. They're like, we just saw this. We just saw this. Jesus told that guy to sell it all and give it to the poor. That's what she's supposed to do. I kind of imagine they're proud of themselves. Like, we finally got it. We learned the lesson. We internalized it. We applied it to this application. And they probably looked at Jesus going, we did it, didn't we? And Jesus says to them, why are you bothering her? (laughs) Why are you bothering her? She has done a beautiful thing to me. She's done a beautiful thing to me. The disciples in this story, the disciples of Jesus, they show us that it is very, very possible to be very well-schooled in the program of Jesus. It is possible to be devoted to the program of Jesus, to be devoted to his principles of social care and generosity, still have a very small heart, still miss the point when it comes to loving and honoring and worshiping Jesus himself. And the woman in the story shows us a wonderful example of love and devotion and worship to Jesus himself. And I think that we can see in her the the realization, the knowledge, the insight, the faith. She knows that no idea and no program, no agenda is going to heal and restore her life. No agenda or program of ours that runs by our own power is going to change the world. If anything is going to happen that's going to heal and restore our lives, anything that's going to happen that's going to create grace and forgiveness and restoration in us, it's not going to be just an idea or theory or program. It's going to be the power of Jesus. If anything is going to create meaningful, lasting change in our world and change human community and change the way that we live, change our hearts, it's not going to be just some ideas that we adopted. It's going to be Jesus himself. And she comes into this place and expresses her love for Jesus. And Jesus says, That's a beautiful thing. Man, there's a lot that I could learn from that woman. There's a lot that we stand to learn from her example. You know, in my life, I have not known seven different Jesuses. But I know that in my life, I have spent time 
more devoted to the program of Jesus than to the person of Jesus. When I think about the early years of my faith, in the early years of my faith, I was consumed with the theological program of Jesus. I was, I was consumed with the transaction that had taken place for my salvation. And, and I knew all about sin and guilt and about grace and forgiveness and the gift of eternal life. I knew the formula for getting in and the price of being out. And I was very, very glad to be in. But you know, I think in truth and retrospect, I think maybe I loved my own salvation more than I loved Jesus. And that made my heart small. I was not full of joy. And that's because you can't get joy from a program. And, and you won't experience joy by chasing joy. The Bible says that joy is the fruit of the Spirit. That joy is the fruit of the Spirit of Jesus in our lives. And I know looking back that I didn't have very much of it. I don't know, does, do you think that ever happens to you? Have you ever been in that danger? Does good religion or right ritual or good theology ever become more important to you than the person of Jesus himself? I know that I've also spent time very committed to the social program of Jesus. I have in other years of my faith been very inspired by Jesus' spirit of inclusion by the radical generosity and sharing of his earliest apostles, I have been enamored of Jesus' vision for human community. I am still enamored of Jesus' vision for human community. I want it to be a program for my life, and I want it to be a program for your life. But I also know, and this story convicts me and reminds me, that that will never fill my heart to overflowing. And it will never fill your heart to overflowing. And I think the reason for that is because a social program or a social vision is really good at making your heart hungry, but it is no good at all at making your heart full. And I have experienced, and I have seen, that it is possible to be full of a vision for love and yet not be full of love. And nobody wants that. Nobody wants that to happen to anybody else. But does that ever happen to you? Does it ever happen that the priorities of Jesus become more important in your life than the person of Jesus? See, I, I want to know the way of Jesus in my life, and I want you to know the way of Jesus. I want everybody to know the way of Jesus. I, I want us to learn to see people like Jesus saw people. And I want to learn to pray like Jesus prayed, and I want our church family to learn to pray like Jesus prayed. I want people to live like Jesus lived and love like Jesus loved and give like Jesus I want that for my life and I want that for us. But even more than that, I want to know Jesus. And I want for you that you would know Jesus. I want to learn to live like he lived because he's in us. I want to see people as Jesus saw people because his eyes are looking for us. I want to learn to pray in the way that Jesus prayed and taught his disciples to pray because we're so close to him. I want to live and love and give the way Jesus lived and loved and gave because we know him, because we experience the powerful presence of his spirit with us, because we know the experience of his love and, and we just can't help ourselves. This passage, it, it totally disarms me. And I hope that it disarms you too. I mean, literally, I hope that it causes each of us to, to lay down our arms 
to lay down our resistance, to lay down the resistance that maybe you didn't even know you were offering and just surrender. Just surrender, not only to the program of Jesus. That'll come, and, and it needs to come. But to the person of Jesus. And in, in just a second, I want to lead us in a moment of prayer to close this time of listening to and reflecting on God's word. And during that time, I just invite you to open your heart, surrender, and respond to whatever it is that the spirit of God in Jesus Christ is speaking to you and calling you into a life-giving relationship with Jesus. Let's pray together. Lord Jesus, we love you and want to know you. Because if there is any hope for us and if there is any hope for our world, it's not going to come by anything that we manufacture. We know it. We don't always admit it, but we know it. We know that if there is any hope for healing in our lives and restoration for us and restoration for your world, that it's going to come from you. It's going to happen because you're good and because you're great. And it's going to come from your power. So we invite your power into our lives. We ask that even where we keep our distance from you, that you would draw close to us and draw us close to you. We love you. And we want to be full of you, full of your spirit. We want to be full of your love and full of your joy and all the fruit of your spirit in our lives. And so it is that we lay down our lives before you. Whatever we are, broken as we are at your feet, we just pour it out before you in worship. In Jesus' name we pray.